It is that time again for us to dive into the Word of God together. We are making our way through this wonderful book, the book of Hebrews, a personal letter by a pastor, a concerned pastor to a troubled congregation. And what made it more troubling to him is that they didn't know they were in trouble. And that's so often the case uh, even today. Um, I pray it's not the case with us, uh, but it's always good to remain humble and to uh, heed all of the admonitions and uh, all of the, uh, the pleadings of the New Testament because it keeps us in a place where we can be sharp, right? Uh, so without further ado, I want to take up our Bibles and turn to Hebrews 11. We begin a new chapter, chapter 11. I have been waiting long uh, for this chapter to come, and I'm very excited to dive into it with you. Today, I can only promise we scratch the surface of this profound chapter, Hebrews 11. <clears throat> we talk about faith this morning. So if you are there and you are at the ready, let me begin by saying that there are a number of introductions that the late Rod Serling gave to each of his new series uh, or new seasons of his cult series, The Twilight Zone, way back in the early 60s. And while all made use of the same familiar themes, uh, the intro to the first season is by far the best. It goes like this. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension at as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. Sorry, but there are no trumpets accompanying me today like he had. But uh, nevertheless, it zeroes in on a, a very interesting introduction. I've heard it countless times uh, in my life as I am an avid fan of the series. But it never occurred to me until now, in the midst of my study of biblical faith from Hebrews 11, and how biblical faith differs from the world's faith in the life after, that Serling's intro is a perfect explanation of secular faith that those in the world exercise in their view of an afterlife. A perfect explanation. Secular faith has to do with a dimension that seems vast and timeless. That's their heaven. And the dimension is manufactured by this faith. Serling said it is a dimension of one's imagination. But it's not heaven. It's something else. And one thing's for sure, those who have this kind of faith are truly living in the twilight zone. And when they die, they will end up in a much worse place. Two very different faiths lead to two very different kinds of living and lead to two very different eternities. We are embarking on several weeks of a study on biblical faith as we're in Hebrews 11, and I am very eager to start this with you this morning. I'll begin our examination of this wonderful passage by reading just the first three verses, and we're not going to get out of verse 1 today. It goes like this, Now faith is certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. 
for by it the people of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the world has been created by the word of God so that what is seen has not been made out of things that are visible. So reads the word of God. There are several major points that the writer makes just in these first three verses, let alone the entire chapter, and we have time this morning for only two of them, the first of which is very simple, profound, but very simple. It is this, biblical faith is divine. Biblical faith is divine. The text doesn't argue this point directly. It's an inference that we make from the writer's use of the word faith throughout this whole letter. It's very much a Christian matter, you see. This is what Christians are concerned with. They are to guard faith, live it, contend for it, keep it, exercise it. The writer's warning has been not to depart from it and explains that those who do never had it to begin with. This isn't just objective faith that we're talking about, that is the apostolic teaching that Jude himself describes, but it is also the subjective act of believers exercising faith, the moment of conversion, and onward throughout their Christian lives. And a theology of faith from the Bible would certainly dictate that biblical faith in both forms is of a different kind altogether than secular faith, different by nature. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, the official statement of faith of our church, states in chapter 14 on saving faith, paragraph 3, that biblical faith, quote, is different in kind or nature, like all other saving graces, from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. By faith of temporary believers, the divines meant counterfeit believers. Those who say they have faith, but then fall away. They are temporary. They don't last. They had a fall-away kind of faith, you could say, a secular kind. By nature. It cites 2 Peter 1, verse 1, as support, which says, To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of, the God, of God our Savior, Jesus Christ. The faith that Peter speaks of here, some have taken to be objective faith. That is certainly a faith of, of its own kind, to be sure. There is no other divine word of God than the Bible. Others like, our, others like our confession see Peter referring to the subjective side of faith, which is the act of believing. And both are possible, and they make absolute sense in the text, which means that biblical faith in both forms is a gift from God. He told Israel upon healing a lame man, that is Peter, in in. Uh, after healing a lame man, he said to the crowd that through faith that came from God that has given this man perfect health. A faith that came from God. That's Acts 3.16. Paul believes subjective faith to be God's gift as well. That's for sure. He tells the Ephesians that faith you exercise at conversion is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And to the Philippians, he said that God granted them faith to believe. 
Now, the writer of Hebrews also talks about subjective faith that God imparts to an individual after regeneration, regenerating his heart, so that with a new redeemed heart, the individual can now exercise this new kind of faith in Christ, and he will. This is biblical faith. And that brings us next to the ver- very essence of this faith. What is it exactly that God gives a person upon conversion? That's the next point. Number two, biblical faith is the assurance of heavenly realities. It is the assurance of heavenly realities. Now, there, a writer arranges the verse after the style of classic Hebrew poetry. That is parallelism. First line of the verse is parallel to the second line. And in this case, it's what we call a synonymous parallelism. That means both sides are really saying the same thing, just in different words. And that's very helpful when you want to know what a word in one line means. You just look at, the, at what the, uh, the, its, its parallel is in the second line. So assurance in the first line is parallel to conviction or proof in the second line. And things hoped for in the first line is parallel to things not seen in the second. Now, putting this all together, it's imperative that we understand that the writer is not giving us a formal definition of faith, or even an exhaustive one for that matter. He's not presenting us with all there is to say about biblical faith, And what he does have to say here is not the final word on the matter. Faith involves more than what we find here. Okay, so what does the writer give us? Well, he certainly presents us with the essence of biblical faith. The essence of biblical faith. No matter what else the Bible says about faith, we can be sure that every occurrence of faith in the Bible has this essential component. What is that essential component? Well, in his words, it's assurance. Assurance. So whether the context is about having faith that the book called the Bible is indeed the words of God, or that a man named Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, that he did all things that the gospel said he did and even rose from the dead, or that the promises he made to his followers will certainly be fulfilled at the end of time. When we say that we have faith that all those things are true, we mean that we have every assurance that they are. Every assurance that they are. And of course, we understand this reference to faith as assurance within the context of this letter. According to everything that the writer has written so far, he clearly wants us to believe that this faith, this assurance, rests on factual information from God himself. That's why we can be assured of it. That's why it is our assurance. He begins this letter, if you remember, talking about how God spoke to the Old Testament patriarchs and now to us in these last days in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. Then at the beginning of verse 2, he says, for this reason we must, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, that is the Word. Again, this is Old Testament truth and apostolic truth that came from Jesus. He continues in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, after, after it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, and God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. 
After establishing that God has spoken to us specifically and his words are the Bible, the writer spends the rest of the book, the rest of the book, proving with Old Testament scripture the identity, works, calling, mission, ministry of Jesus Christ. So when he speaks to these recipients about faith that they exercise, he means a faith that is grounded solidly in biblical facts, in historical facts that are undeniable. This is why he calls biblical faith our assurance. It comes by sound proof, by hard evidence, by undeniable first-hand testimony and eyewitness accounts. This, it seems to me, is the essence of biblical faith, an assurance rooted in God's absolute and undeniable truth. That's faith, the essence of faith, rooted in God's absolute and undeniable truth. Now, I mentioned, though, I mentioned though faith in the New Testament has its essential quality of assurance, it's elaborated on in many different contexts in the New Testament. And here in uh, Hebrews 11, 1 to 3, this is just one of those contexts that does this, that does elaborate upon the essence of faith. It applies the essence of faith to only one aspect of the Christian life, and that's the future. It really, as we'll go on to see, applies it to the present life by using the future uh, to be more specific and to be correct about this. But it really refers to the future here. More specifically, he talks about promises that God has made to Christians of an inheritance, which he calls our hope in verse 1. So this context further develops biblical faith this way. It's being assured of future heavenly realities. That's something that we cannot see, we cannot witness, we haven't witnessed yet. It's what comprises all that we hope for in Christ. Faith looks forward to the certain arrival of what Jesus promised us. You might be wondering then how biblical faith, this faith of a different kind, is all that different from faith that unbelievers seem to exercise when it comes to anticipating future outcomes? How does it really differ? People hope for certain future outcomes they haven't experienced all the time. Promotion at work, a new home, children, grandchildren, to be sufficient and financially comfortable, better health, well, the list goes on. Well, yes, that's true. But you need to know that secular faith can look like biblical faith at times because there's always a vestige of the real in the counterfeit. Always a vestige of the real in the counterfeit. That's what makes it counterfeit. So you can be sure that secular faith is no more than a facade, a form that is empty of substance, as Serling called it, of the imagination. It's lacking, it's missing something, it's incomplete. So what is the missing element? Assurance, that's what. It's missing assurance. You see, secular or worldly faith rests on things like speculation or strong desire. Sometimes probability, sometimes the majority, you know, majority rules, that's what gives me the 
validity thing. At other times, it's the law of averages. Some entrepreneur says to his wife, let's go ahead and buy the boat. I foresee the rest of the year unfolding in a favorable way for us, giving the law of averages, which means that our business is going to thrive. Insurance policies, stocks, mutual funds, warranties, retirement plans, medical insurance, they all operate on the principle of probability and law of averages. All of them. They deal with elements of uncertainty, and it's that element of uncertainty that generates faith, their particular kind of faith. Think about it. What is there that can possibly promise or guarantee with absolute certainty anything in the future? Can you think of anything with absolute certainty? I have faith in you, Skip, Dad says to his son, who's a budding musician. You're going to make it big someday. There may be indications that this is likely to happen. But even if the kid already has a contract with a music company, a small cult following, and airtime on a local radio show, there is still no guarantee. Carr could mow him down on his way to the recording studio and put an end to it. We don't know. Even the experts depend on law of averages to offer the best course of action, which, in the end of the day, may or may not be the best course of action. It's always a gamble. Life. Always a gamble. It seems like meteorologists are wrong just as many times as they're right. Do you ever notice that? We still watch them. So whether we're talking about a forecast, medical prognosis, empirical research, there can be no guarantees about a certain outcome of the future. You might feel more secure having the law of averages on your side. I understand. But there are so many other variables that come into play that you cannot possibly account for. By the middle of President Trump's term of office, America had the highest rate of employment in its history, the greatest economy ever. It was a great time to own a business. Law of averages would dictate at that time that it would only get better for businesses. And then the pandemic hit. And if that wasn't enough, a new political party took over and took advantage of that pandemic to push their agenda that was sure to put small mom-and-pop businesses out of business. Someone says, well, we were right with our law of averages and 99% certain that the the great economy under Trump would grow even better. We couldn't account for a pandemic. Exactly. Exactly my point. You cannot account for every variable. You don't know the future. What can people outside of a relationship with a sovereign and good God who have no assurance from divine revelation about future realities possibly know for sure about their future? At best, they can only guess. It may be an educated guess, but a guess nonetheless. And the faith that they muster for a desired future outcome is rooted in speculation, even if it's scientific or based on the law of averages. So it's nothing that can assure anyone of anything. The Farmer's Almanac uses a method to make their forecast that they describe as, quote, exclusive mathematical and astronomical formula that relies on snapshot activity 
title, title action, planetary position, astrology, and many other factors. End quote. Not sure what the other factors are, but the ones they mention here are subject to change and significantly enough to make their forecasts invalid. By the way, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not telling you something that the world doesn't already know in part. Oh, no. People admit all the time that their faith is not grounded in fact or reason. That's why it's faith. Faith is what takes you beyond reason, beyond proof. When there are no facts, nothing to go on, that's when you need to believe. When you have reason or evidences, there's no need for faith. Faith is only when you're going to venture into it, the unknowable. Secure, secular faith has nothing to do with knowledge in any real significant way. It's what people commonly refer to as a leap, right? A leap. You've heard that before. In that expression, faith means that which gets from the known to the unknown. By the way, the technical definition for leap of faith, according to Oxford, is, quote, an act of believing in or attempting something whose existence or outcome cannot be proven, end quote. This all sounds so hopeless, doesn't it? It does. When people start a new business, get married, start a family, buy a car, buy a house, they have certain expectations going forward about the outcome of these ventures, but they have no guarantees. They have no faith. Oh, I'm sorry, they have faith in the relationship, yes, in the product, in the circumstances, which only means that they desire these things to turn out or operate or relate in a certain way. But there is no guarantee that they will, which is why businesses go bankrupt and marriages end in divorce. My children become defiant, and the house turns up hidden in expensive problems, and the car is a lemon. Now, when you add to this the, the unknown variables like pandemics and shutdowns and riots in the streets, it's a wonder anyone in the world has any motivation to continue with anything. But they do. Okay, they do. And in many cases, believe it or not, this kind of faith that the world musters can be strong and even contagious, which makes this kind of faith all the more dangerous. Let me, uh, let me talk a little bit to this. America has had its share of fanatical cult leaders who wound up leading their faithful followers to mass suicide after convincing them that certain truths were true, or certain information, I should say, was true when they were really lies. The three major tragedies led by cult leaders are Jonestown, the Branch Davidians, and the Heaven's Gate. Maybe you remember some or all of those. Two of them, Jonestown and Heaven's Gate, ended in mass suicide. In 1978, Jim Jones himself persuaded his followers as they met in their compound in Guyana that suicide was necessary. And they all literally drank the Kool-Aid, which was laced with cyanide. That's, I think, where the expression comes from. As to Heaven's Gate, we have a window into their thinking right before they ended their lives in 1977. Just before mass suicide, the group's website was updated with this message. Quote, Hail Bop, 
referring to the comet, brings closure to heaven's gate. Our 22 years of classroom here on planet Earth is finally coming to conclusion. Graduation from human evolutionary level. We are happily prepared to leave this world and go with T's crew, end quote. T was one of the founders. He with Doe, both founded Heaven's Gate. How deceived, how sad. Now here's a frightening aspect of this strong faith. People who produce a strong faith for certain outcome in the future and fill the gap left by the absence of proof with this with this faith, can literally convince themselves of the certainty of an outcome. They convince themselves of the certainty of the outcome. They convince themselves that something will happen by just by how aggressively they believe it will happen, as if they can make it happen by believing it so aggressively. The point here is that what makes for strong faith of the secular brand is not so much its object then, it's the desire of the person, him or herself. People can produce a strong and contagious faith in something that, they, that their very faith has convinced them exists and is certain. In other words, their faith is nothing more than wistful thinking. That's with a T. Wistful thinking. The Oxford Dictionary defines wistful thinking as, are you ready? Quote, the attribution of reality to what one wishes to be true, or tenuous justification of what one wants to believe, end quote. Can you imagine? Imagine that's what it is. What makes it real, of course, to many, is the fact that, well, people have accomplished a great deal on this kind of secular faith that has no basis in fact, in reason, or proof. They have. We have to be honest. I mean, they go to war believing they'll win. And America has won the majority of, of her wars. We, all of us, trust that drivers won't cross the solid yellow line and hit us head on. If we didn't believe that, we would never drive. Now, you don't know everybody who operates a motor vehicle that's, by, that's passing you by on the road. It could be all kinds of people disturb people, troubled people, but you drive, don't you? We hear all the time people losing control and shooting kids in school and, in, and people in churches, but people still have faith that it won't happen to their kids and they send them off to school every day. And here you are in church. Once again, this kind of faith operates on the law of averages, on change, on probability, chance rather, on probabilities, on likelihoods. Now, let me just say, it's not wrong, obviously, for us to operate in some degree in our lives on the basis of educated guessing or law of averages. The difference is that we're not claiming this to be faith. The Word, of course, does claim. Uh, the world, rather, does claim it to be faith because it rejects God's special revelation. Now, up to this point, I've mentioned that as all saving graces that are completely different by nature to their secular counterparts, biblical faith is far different from secular faith, far different. And it's time to, to now prove that from Hebrews 11, verse 1. As you look at the text, the writer shows us by his choice of words that biblical faith, the divine, this divine faith that he has shown us all throughout his letter to be unique faith that belongs to Christians only is not 
the secular brand. It's, it's the kind that Peter had and that he talks about in 2 Peter 1.1. It is not wistful thinking faith or farmer's almanac faith or the leap of faith faith, the faith of imagination that Serling speaks of, or the strong desire kind of faith or the law of averages faith. It's none of that. It's not divorced from reason, our faith, this biblical faith. It's not divorced from knowledge. It's, it's not divorced from proof. Rather, it rests on them. According to verse 1, faith is an assurance, as we said. Another word, by the way, this Greek word is translated guarantee. Faith is a guarantee. Now, the Greek word, for those of you who are following along in your Greek Bibles, hypostasis. Um, the, the New American Standard Bible translates certainty in the first line that is parallel to the word proof in the second line. And it's a great translation. Certainty is in, is, is in the sense of a guarantee. That's the way that the Greek word was used for years leading up to the writing of the New Testament. That's according to Moulton and Milligan. These are two Greek scholars from Cambridge University who lived back in the 1800s. They, record, they recorded how various terms and expressions in the New Testament were actually used in secular writings around the same time as the New Testament and then put their findings in a book called The Vocabulary of the Greek New Testament Illustrated from Papyri and Other Non-Literary Sources. It's a wonderful book. The Greek word that we are translating assurance or certainty had been used for the word title deed of homes and properties. The title deed. Your deed was your guarantee that you owned your property. It gave proof of ownership in the ancient world. still does today. If you possessed this title, you were guaranteed use and enjoyment of your land. Your land. Now, you might be wondering, well, what does title deeds have to do with Hebrews 11.1? Here's, here's what it has to do with 11.1. That which is promised to you in Christ, these heavenly realities, things that we cannot see, that we hope for, that are reserved for us, those things that we will inherit, your faith provides you with the guarantee that they are not only real, but they belong to you to enjoy to the fullest in heaven someday. That's the idea here. Faith is the assurance, the guarantee, the certainty that these heavenly realities Jesus promised to us will be ours at the end of time. The way that Moulton and Milligan translate Hebrews 11.1 1 is this. Faith is the title deed of things hoped for. These heavenly realities do exist. God said so. And we will inherit them someday. God said so in his word. But there's more. Heaven is deeded to us. This is the idea. Deeded to us. We hold the title to that which Jesus is preparing for us. So our experience of heaven in full someday is so certain that there is a sense in which these heavenly realities belong to us now. They are as good as owned. I like the way that one older commentator explains this. Listen to this. It's, 
It's, uh, it's very good, actually, very concise. Quote, faith is a guarantee of the heavenly realities for which we hope. Not only does it render them certain for us, but it envisions them as rightfully belonging to us. It is in itself an objective assurance of our definite enjoyment of them. Consequently, faith takes possession by anticipation of these heavenly blessings and is a genuine commencement of the divine life with a guarantee of its everlasting permanence. End quote. You say, really, that's a good quote? Yes, it is. This is an excellent quote, and it's right on the money. He says that faith that we exercise is, is, uh, is an objective assurance. We mentioned how secular faith makes a desired future outcome real for people, but biblical faith does not make heavenly realities real. They are real already. They exist already. Biblical faith simply guarantees our ownership of them. So we're not generated, generating some false sense of reality by, by what we desire or set our sights on something that we want to be there that really isn't. No, God's gift of faith is rooted in his promises recorded in Scripture. And it points, to, it points us to heavenly realities and guarantees that, that belong to us as rightful heirs with Christ and that we will enjoy them in full someday. And the last part of this, which is so wonderful, is that such faith as God gives us, a divine faith, really enables us to express our assurance of these heavenly realities by anticipating their arrival. And what he means by that is how we live our lives in light of them. You can always tell when somebody's anticipating something by the way they behave. That's what he's getting at. We can live now in light of what we know we will have someday in heaven. And he calls it a commencement of the divine life, And he means by that that this faith allows us to enjoy the eternal life that awaits now, albeit incomplete, but we can begin to enjoy it now. You live in such great anticipation of the certainty of the hope of the realities of heaven. It makes a huge difference in the way that you live. We're going to see just how much of a difference it made in these catalog of champions of faith of old as we, get, as we work our way through Hebrews chapter 11. I can't wait. And we will see uh, how it affects us today as well. So this kind of faith that the writer of Hebrews talks about is this certainty, this guarantee. And we can assume that this is how the first century Jewish Christian audience understood it. And this understanding makes perfect sense when you consider the biblical meaning of hope, which we have addressed before in Hebrews and supported from the rest of the New Testament, biblical hope always refers to certainty. Jesus is our blessed hope. It's in the context of his second coming. He is our certainty, our guarantee. He's coming back, right? No question about it. We know that because he came once already. And he rose from the dead. He's coming again. And the faith that we have assures us, guarantees us, ownership of our inheritance that Christ will bring with him. 
So with the combination of guarantee and biblical hope, there's everything here to suggest that the writer has a has in mind a firm, immovable, objective assurance in heavenly realities. This isn't, any, this isn't anything we make up. This isn't anything that we 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 uh, we hope for as a as a worldly hope, with the chance that it couldn't happen. No, this is a guarantee, a title deed of heaven that promises our ownership and enjoyment. And the second line of this verse confirms our conclusion. Faith is a conviction, it says, a conviction of these heavenly realities, which we cannot see now, but are certainly real. Conviction translates a Greek word that also refers to objective proof, evidence of the reality of something, uh, and in this case, a life with Christ in heaven. The verb form of this word, to prove, is used in a negative way in Titus 1. Speaking of the duties of an elder in the church, Paul says in verse 9, the elder must be able to refute those who contradict sound doctrine. So when an elder refutes heretics or just someone who is in error, he gives convincing evidence of hermeneutical wrongdoing. Further on in verse 13, Paul says, reprove them therefore severely that they may be sound in the faith. And here the elder shows the elder shows them proof, gives them evidence that they are wrong in their interpretation of doctrine. That's how the word is used. So this thing called faith that God gives us upon conversion as a fruit of the Holy Spirit's regenerative work in us is our assurance of heavenly realities that, that we confidently anticipate. This faith which allows us to see for the first time Christ as the true Son of God and Messiah and the Lord and Lord, the moment of God's regenerating us is the same faith that also assures us of the certainty that God's promises will come to pass at Christ's second coming. It is one and the same faith in both our justification and our sanctification. We are saved by this faith, and we live by the same faith. The faith that God gives us upon regeneration is an assurance that Jesus is who he claims to be. And upon exercising that, God justifies us to complete the justification process. We go on to live by this faith, which allows us to express our unflagging confidence that the promise of God made to us in Christ will come to pass. Faith is unshakable conviction. Well, there's a good deal more that the writer says here about the essence of biblical faith, and we will examine it more in our next study. In closing, I I want to bring just a very brief word of application. Mostly an application for all unbelievers, all non-Christians in earshot of this message that, that are either skeptical of the faith or on the verge of trusting Christ. And it is this. It is absolutely silly, in fact ridiculous, to live by chance and speculation of the future when you can live by God's sound revelation about the future, especially when it comes to life after death. Jesus Christ died for the sins of sinners, and he rose from the dead conquering death. That is a historical fact. The tomb was empty. And he spoke to his disciples with the authority of God because he is God. 
and he told us through them exactly how it will be. He speaks to you now in the gospel as God himself and as the only one who died and rose again from the dead to tell you about it. And more than 500 people testified to seeing Jesus alive after his resurrection, and you can read it in the New Testament, a fully reliable book. What other proof do you need that what he says about the future is true? What else is there that you can turn to that is better than this? Nothing. Someone says, well, I, I don't know what's on the other side, but I'm, I'm willing to take a chance. None of my dis- deceased friends or family members have, have ever come back from the dead to tell me about it. I'll grant you that. So I'm just stepping out into the unknown in all sincerity hoping against hope that I'll find them waiting for me in this idyllic paradise. Hmm. Really. Don't take chances with your eternal destiny, especially when you don't have to. There is proof. There's evidence. Eyewitness account, it's all there in writing and verified by eyewitness accounts. Jesus rose from the dead. Ask God for faith to believe, to trust this. Ask him for saving faith that assures and guarantees you life everlasting and a great inheritance in heaven someday. That was the message, or part of the message, that the writer had for those in this first century congregation who perhaps had not quite trusted Christ, but were on the verge And we're starting to have cold feet. It's a message that is timeless and it stands today and it will stand forever. And that is the message to those who are without Christ. It's simple, but it will make all the difference in eternity. For those of us who have done that and walked the narrow way, Our understanding of what it means to live by faith in the promises of God has tremendous impact for living the Christian life. Having studied Hebrews 11 like I've never studied it before, I cannot wait to show you just how tremendous this is. And it is so very important for us to be prepared and ready to receive it, especially in light of today and what's going on in the body of Christ at large across America. So much deception, so much apostasy, so much compromise. And many times, the line between truth and error, or truth and counterfeit, is blurred. And only those who know doctrine well and understand the kind of faith we are called to exercise will be able to discern this and not be taken in, but rather live as an example, as a champion of faith for God's glory and for the benefit of the church today. So your homework is to read chapter 11 and come ready to be blown away by the truth therein, God's truth. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word.